Okay, let's not be phone. I mean, what you got your degree in engineering, you can't turn off the phone. What do you mean, trying to? Obviously, it's a deeper, deeper thing that's not like you're turning off the phone. It's deeper, it's deeper than just pure cognition. I'd like to welcome all here today. Um, the topic that we're presently exploring is in a general sense using our experience of life to gain insight into the spiritual world based on the model that anything that occurs in the physical world is a mechanism whereby we can perceive, understand and grasp the spiritual world. The spiritual world is not open to our senses. So we need to have some way of of making it uh, making it real. How do we do that? Um, well, we we can relate to parts of ourselves which have an overlap to the spiritual world. We know that Hashem loves us, but that knowledge, unless we've experienced the emotion of love itself, becomes irrelevant. The analogy we drew was that of a blind curator in a museum that he, he knows information, but he has no connection, real understanding, which is based on an experiential component. So if you... Re- What? So you say that you can actually get true appreciation of Hashem until we A, are married and B, have children. Because then you've only experienced love then. So it's an amazing point you've just made, Dembi, is that the more a person has life experience, the more broader he is as a person, the deeper his spiritual awareness grows. Which is really interesting because it means that for us, getting married and having a family is a necessary prerequisite for a deep understanding of a Kashem. Whereas for many other religions, isolating yourself and moving away from society becomes a true way of passage to godliness. So that's really, in many ways, diametrically opposed to, to, to many other pathways for spirituality. But yes, so that's a pathway for spirituality, to have, to have a wife and screaming kids in the background. That's going to teach you about Rebani Shalom, 100%. Because you have no idea what whiners we can be. And therefore, it, it means that the person has to, have to embrace the experiences of life as crucial guides in allowing you perception. And the person with limited life experience will also have limited perception of the Creator. Now, there is a, another way of getting this but it's uh, it's not the the the, tr- the, 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 the oft trodden path. A person can get this level of perception, not always with a life experience. Now, I quote the Gemara in Sota. The Gemara in Sota discusses the amount of time a 
couple have to be isolated in a room in order for them to do a to to engage in an act of creation procreation um, and one of the opinions quoted is Ben Azai and the Gemara says all of the Tanoim that gave their opinions used their own personal experience as a gauge so the Gemara says Ben Azai wasn't married <laughs> Ben Azai ben it's a Machlokes but there is an opinion that says Ben Azai never got married what do you mean how did he know so the Gemara says so did Hashem li'ireyav Certain things Hashem gives to those that are so connected that they get opened up the the divine channels and they can know things without experiencing them. But the, the trodden part is you can you only know from experience, and therefore the more broad your life experience is, the more you have access to understanding Torah. Until Rabbi Yochum says this very pertinent comment, and you can have this in your mind because it will come up time and time again. The greatest commentary there has ever been on the Torah is you and your life. Which means that everything that I experience is commentating on the Torah. In order to be able to understand the commentary, you also have to have access to the Torah. That's one of the reasons why you have to know all the Torah. Because otherwise it was not clear what part of the Torah this part of my life is commentating on. If you don't have the Torah, then there's no commentary. It just looks in isolation as an irrelevant piece of information. But when you understand it, um, if I can give an example, In this week's parasha, last week's parasha. So, in that crucial moment when Eliezer was waiting to meet a potential bride for his master's son Yitzchak, he prays and it says, just as he's about to finish speaking to Hashem, already Rivka appeared. And he ran towards her, said, Will you? Give me something to drink and my camels. And she was hasty too. And she ran. And and it says the word Vatoris, Vatoris, she ran, she ran everywhere. And the Gemara says, Call my same shil tzaddikim Bemihirus. All the ways of tzaddikim the righteous, are done with speed. And there's a lot of discussion as to what the necessity for rapid movement is. And is it, is it Dafka the, the speed or is it the intention or do you always have to be moving forward? Is there no room to be a little bit more temperate in your movement? And then Rifka goes home and she tells her brother, Lavan, Laban. And he has about it and he runs. Oh, but he's a Russia, he's evil, he's a ligna, a shakran, a bluffer, as they say in Yiddish. So why, why is he running? So you see, ooh, running can be ambiguous. So I've got these two things of running in my mind. And I know that tzaddikim work with quickness and seemingly also people who are evil-intentioned also do. So now, let me use my life as a commentary. 
can I think back to a time when I moved, I ran towards doing something? Can I? Can you? Outside of some type of ridiculously demarcated area where a group of fully grown men with strange <laughs> costumes and passionately bounce a stupid piece of inflated some type of rubber around in the vain hope that they'll get it into some type of hoop. <laughs> okay, good. Gone. No, that was it. Oh, that was it? I said no. You said no. Other than that. Other than that. So let's take that. You're running towards the basket. You're running. Why are you moving fast? Why, why, why not just why not just chill out? Because if you don't run, you're not going to score. It's not going to work. So you see that when you're goal motivated, you know that's that's a metaphor, but we use it the whole time. When you're goal driven, you run, and you make sure you don't drop the ball. So now this would be a fascinating point. So now, what you could do is. You want to use your life as a parish in the Torah. So you want to understand what was Rivka's running all about. So you have a part in your life where there was running. So now you have to start to play around about how does this comment on that. What was the experience of their running? Now, her running was the beginning of Klal Yisrael. You're running. <laughs> you weren't even playing for the national team, so you can't even say that. You can't say, we took Israel to a new level of professional sportsmanship. Um... So, do, do you know, are you getting all these references, Ali? Yeah, Zach was, he spent, invested, I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, enormous amounts of time. I'm not offending you, I'm offending him. So how can you speak about basketball like that, Seagull? It's holy. <laughs> He's a real player. He can take it, Alec. You're just an amateur. <laughs> so, 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 so what you do is you, you look at you look at you look at your life when you ran. You look at your life when you ran. But I don't even like. Or, or maybe you you know, J- Jeremy, you, you've never run in your life. Many times. Give me an example. One time you ran. Uh, last night I ran. Two hours. Whoa! <laughs> Whoa! Whoa! How many k's? Uh, nine miles. So what? Twenty. No, no. 18, 18. No, it's the 16, 1.6 times 1.6. That's what you shoot with those two? Wow. Well, I mean, they're, they're actually it's fascinating to contrast their running with let's say running for a bus That's right. very different energy emotionally so one of the things we have to realize which, which again in this evolving picture that you have to use your life as a commentary on the Torah you also have to realize that our lives are engaged in a uh, ourselves are engaged in a constant dialogue there's a constant dialogue between body and mind so call it Gufa Nefesh and our body is always talking to our nephesh, and our nephesh is talking back to our body. There's a dialogue. How the dialogue works? So, for example, one of the ways the dialogue works is when I'm excited about something, I move my body fast. And therefore, when I move my body fast, my internal self now knows I'm excited. So, one of the tricks social scientists have done is they've given people a questionnaire. 
Now I've forgotten what the questions were. I think they asked opinions on pictures of people. And for one fifty percent of the participants they said take a pen and insert it between your lips in the middle and push down on it. And for the other half of the group they say take a pen and insert it into your mouth between your teeth. And the people who had the pen with pursed lips responded negatively and the people who had the pen with the raised lips responded positively. Because even though it was a completely forced physical motion with no emotional contact, the people with pursed lips, they mouth had indicated to themselves that they were unhappy. And the people with the raised lips, their mouth was shaped in smiles so they were happy. If, if you want to experience this for yourselves, we can do it now. Would you like to do it now? Yes, thank you, <laughs> Too scared? <laughs> I'm so <laughs> so Damn. The whole purpose of the show is to take you out of your comfort zone. <laughs> your comfort zone is way too comfortable. <laughs> your comfort zone is like comfortably headed towards your secure master. What about your potential as a Tom Chacham and Yeshiva? Hey, what about that? Hey, you don't like to go there, do you? The path is trodden. So, one way you can experience this is there are two two emotions which go in opposite directions internally and also externally. The one emotion is sadness and the other one happiness. Sadness, when you experience sadness, the way your body reflects it is literally a contraction. You sink inside yourself. So you go, uh, you, you, you pull everything in. You pull everything into yourself. Right? Happiness is the exact opposite direction. You try to extend. Everything becomes bigger. Sadness, everything, everything becomes smaller. Happiness, you, you jump for joy. Meaning you won't even break the normal boundaries of self. You want to go beyond them. It's, and happiness is in the middle of expansion, of extension. And sadness is in the middle of contraction. Good? So now we're going to experience this dialogue. Don't worry, it won't take you too much out of your comfort zone. Okay? Now unfortunately, many of us in our lifetimes have experienced sad moments, correct? I want you to all now, just briefly, close your eyes and picture a sad memory, either affected you or affected someone else, a really sad scene. Try to relive what it looked like the noises that were present at the time, the smells, the tastes, feel. Now, keep that memory in your mind and open your eyes and start to extend your hands with a big smile. Start to go like this. Keep the memory in your mind. Keep the memory in your mind. Keep it in your mind. Keep it in your mind. <sighs> what happens? Just managed. Can't stay there, right? You can't keep it in. You can't keep it in. Because your body's told you you're not there. So your body and your mind are involved in a constant dialogue that your body's telling you what you feel and you're telling your body how to act. Mm. But the fascinating point is it can actually work both ways. 
So it's not only that if I feel something, I will express it in the way I move. Also, if I move in a way, it will change the way I feel. And that's the famous point that the Mr. Shari makes in Zrizus, in the in the trait of enthusiasm. He says this line: that the external actions awaken the internal. And he says that's why a person, if he wants to engender enthusiasm, begin by moving your body fast and then you'll start to feel an experience of enthusiasm. But if you act lethargically, it will actually de-enthuse you. New word. And you'll feel less enthusiastic. So simply by your body, soul, body, nefesh, dialogue, you can change something. So now, if you read the line the Mitzvah Shoyim, and then we do this exercise, we now are commenting, our life is a commentary on the Mitzvah Shoyim. The overall point I'm trying to work out, or express, is that the life and Torah intertwined. And everything you experience in life, you should be able to find it in a pasuk, in a Bursa Sefer, in a halacha. And everything that you find in a halacha, you have to find it in your life. Because Torah is not an external description, it's, it's not an external prescription, it's an internal description. It's the point that we began to describe last time we spoke about that the halacha is not a rule book. It's not that you keep rules and then when you do well you get a ticket, when you do bad you get a cross. It's describing, it's giving you an insight into what you are and who you are. But we have to make a proactive attempt to find that connecting point in that resonance. Yes? Good? Good. Zach? Um, how do we explain then <coughs> the idea that we're talking about davening the person should stand... Oh. So now let's uh, say precisely that. So now when a person stands... So now let's let's speak about the position that, that you're praying. So now, theoretically speaking, theoretically speaking, a person could stand in any way. Or he couldn't have to stand. He could stand like this. Right? Your, your stance in Davening could be like this. Yeah. But you understand that those, those, those stances give off something. If a person stands with a swagger. <laughs> the hand in right pocket. The old hand in right pocket. Hey. Hey, Denby. <laughs> Not going anywhere. Okay. Take your hands. Not doing anything. Take your head. Your body is telling you something. Then, the power. What a bow means is that universally it's looked upon as a sign of submission. Meaning, there's a lot of communication, not only in terms of body, but in terms of other material, physical parts of our being. So, position, in terms of above and below, has relevance emotionally as well. That's why we find many leaders are tall. American presidents are renowned for being tall. 
you're not tall, so they know it's going to look at you. They're not a little pipsqueak that big. What do you mean? The guy may be the best lead in the world. You know, pips and things. <laughs> Comes up. Yeah, you're joking. What do you mean? Enough came in. It was got a different brain because he's half the size. When you're tall, it means I'm bigger than you. We take things metaphorically very, have very kind of symbolic connotations. So when I'm standing up, I'm above you. You got it? But when I bow down, you're above me. And that is the metaphorical, symbolistic implication of that every single creature in the world, their vertebrates, their spine, is parallel to the ground because they don't have freedom of choice. They are in constant and total submission to their Creator. They do as they're told. And an act of submission is this. You tell me what to do. I'm at your service. You have authority. I'm the obedient one. You tell me what to do. I bow down to you. I bow my head in submission. So bowing is a statement of high authority that I obey. Reflected in the animal kingdom. Ah, you'll say, what about kangaroos? Watch kangaroos. They keep on bowing down. It's just like stand up occasionally, but their real stance is when you see your average kangaroo, it looks like a dog. Correct? Mm-hmm. Kangaroos. <laughs> kangaroos, when you see kangaroos playing around, they do stand up, but they stand up, look, and then they go down again. And it's quite interesting to see also when you, when you, when you go to the zoo, well, zoo or your backyard, if you look at animals like in the transition, like, like take apes, for example, who are like the kind of the, the halfway place between man and animal. They, they try to stand upright and then they go down again and they, it's almost as if there's like this, this pressure pushing them down the whole time and they stand up and they go down they stand up and then they go down whereas man stands up and he doesn't bow down he bow down to no one so you bow down so what are you bowing down bowing down is, in, is you telling your body is telling your nefesh high authority now the biggest kasha is how do you come up again and in fact, there's different halachas for different people. Who, in the beginning of Ishmael Esrei, bows down and never comes up? Fascinating. The king of Israel. The king of Israel. The Kohen Godel bows down every single bracha. The king starts bowing down and he remains in that position. Don't think you're king. <laughs> the higher your authority is in terms of feeling, the more humble you have to be. The more you have to realize, no, I'm not the authority. The, the people who, who have positions of authority, those are the guys that you have to be concerned about. There's a, there's a trait called arrogance or gaiva, right? Gaiva is this kind of this, I'm a something. So once there was a bocha, young yeshiva man learning, learning, and he's trying to perfect his character traits. So he's learning Musa about gaiva. The yeshiva came up to me and he said, came up to me and said, "What are you doing?" So he's now I'm working gaiva. He said, "What you got to work on gaiva for? <laughs> You're nothing. Be shame. Be something. You can work on Gaiva. That's that's just sheer fantasy and imagination. Gaiva's real. You you really are in charge. 
then you have to be humble. If you're already in charge, it's not what you knew. It's just like that sheer, sheer delusions of grandeur. That's not Gaiva. <laughs> That's great, no? Is that on Yom Kippur? Is that why on Yom Kippur we go to the food? We do a lane and we. Uh, that, I mean, that's, that's a, the idea. The idea is that, that bowing down in the base of Mikdash was you didn't used to bow down. You used to fall flat on your face and prostrate yourself on the ground. In the base of Mikdash, when you heard Hashem's name, that's what you did. That's the ultimate let go, the ultimate surrender. What about Moedim? There you're saying thanks. There you're saying everything I have is yours. Hmm. But if, if you're the king, then you never came up. King, again, for the Holy Yeah, but in that state. strong back, or like. You're, you're asking about, like, where he does warm ups? Well, no, also he wouldn't get in the three bows. He would just, like. No bows, no three bows. He just goes down. That's it. Zo. Zo. I agree with you, lots of like, kind of, lots of Pilates beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> like painting, man, I guess, you know, like, did a bit of lumbering up beforehand, like, stretches and... No, it also wasn't like 15 minutes from night or something like that, they were probably, you know... Beating it away there. Yeah. So Two hours. Strong stomach, core, man. What about the core? <laughs> I told you this once, that core, man, it's about the core. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's the difference between gaiva and inflated ego inflated ego comes from in, 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 its, in its root in, your, in, in the negative part of yourself inflated ego comes from something called wind hot air, it has nothing to find yourself on gaiva comes from something called fire substance so one, one is this real, I have a real I'm really above you and I should be humble and I and I no I I, I I get myself intoxicated with my own power, but I have real power. Then then the guy is shy. When I don't have real power, it's just <laughs> it's fantasy. It's not it's hot air. Mama hot air. So in the lane it says the Korean. Means, yeah. So we're bending the knees. Korean And we bow. So I don't. When I see people talk, they don't really bend the knees. They just bend the waist. Find them for me. Come, we'll go get them. Yeah, <laughs> what, do you want? what do you want from my life? But is that what you're what supposed to do? Yes, so the 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Vanachnu, Koyim. A little slight bend, right? Slight bend, you don't put too much pressure on those knees. We're like, we have stretch up, stretch up beforehand, you don't want to go into a lane, you're like, core ball stuff. As you get to a lane, Vanachnu, Koyim. Slight lowering of the body, try to put weight on your on your back. <laughs> then cream, and then like the fall. Okay, so yeah, you get it. In other words, you get the dialogue in Shemoni Esrei. Very kind of now the question is okay. So now we've gone down. So how do we get back up again? I mean, we acknowledge that we have a high authority. So what right, stum? What right do you have to walk upright? We should also be, if we accept the authority of the Creator, perpetually bent down, no? Why do we ever stand up? We should be walking around like this. Because <laughs> he straightened us. We didn't do that. Because he gave us free will. We didn't do that. We, I mean, we didn't create ourselves to stand up. Partners? Yeah, partners. So we can dance. What? <laughs> Basically. Because Hashem gave us the ability to be partners almost without free choice we can So you see that the capacity to stand up, the permission to rise up from that state is if you're standing up as a image of a God. 
image of God. You're standing up as a Selim Hakim. Meaning, you're now a representative of what the Creator is in the world. That's your right to stand upright. Fascinating. Isn't it also that while we uh, have our feet together and our arms say that we can only move because of you? This is only move my lips. Because of you, I'm moving my lips. Prayer seems to be kind of a contraction then. So why would that, yeah, why would prayer right. seem to be more sad than an expansive happiness? Oh. So now there's an interesting thing, there's a whole... I wouldn't say it's a sadness, it's a stillness. It's different. It's not this. It's this. Everything is quiet. Stillness. Body quiet. You feel that, that in order for the soul to speak, the body has to be quiet. That's why when you sleep, a dream is a sixtieth of prophecy. Because when you sleep, the body's quiet. So when the body's quiet, then the soul can hear the messages that it's getting. But when the body's making a loud noise, <laughs> so then can't hear anything. This is way too intense for you. It's no. not even starting. It's not even the intense scale for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So that's uh, that. Let's just summarize what we learned. What we're trying to explore today is we're trying to give over the idea that you can access Hashem through your life and yourself, and that accessing Hashem has got components to it. One of the components is like just seeing my character traits, seeing what Hashem is. But there's another thing called the Torah. And when you say you can use your experiences to access Hashem, it also means through your life you can get understanding in the Torah and through the Torah you can get understanding in your life. And really there has to be that continued dialogue because without this dialogue, so what will happen is your life will become compartmentalized and you'll be experiencing life as one thing and Torah as another. And Torah will be your religion and life will be your occupation. And that's fundamentally antithetical towards Judaism, which is not a religion but a state of being. And incorporates every thought, word and act that you perform. So we're expanding that by saying that this dialogue has to continue. And through my actions I get insight into the world, into, into Hashem, into my life, into the Torah. And through the Torah I get action, insight into my life and so on and so forth and that was what we hope to glean from today's time together thank you for your rapt attention